Lord, we thank you for your continued kindness to us, and we rejoice in that you are great. We ascribe majesty and glory and dominion to your name. We know you are sovereign over all things and that nothing that happens in this world happens outside of your sovereign control. We acknowledge that the things, the evil that exists in the world exists on a leash and you order things in ways that are mysterious to us and yet work out for an end that is good for those who love you. We know that you are just and right and holy and so we praise you for these things. We pray that as we look at this epistle of First John, that you might help us to understand it, to apply it to our lives, and to love you more because of it, in Christ's name, amen. Little children love one another. Jerome, the church historian from the 4th century A.D., one time told this story about the Apostle John, of course, John that is Christ's disciple and the author of the Gospel of John and the letters of John. Jerome writes this in his commentary on Galatians. He says, The blessed John the Evangelist lived in Ephesus until extreme old age. His disciples could barely carry him to church and he could not muster the voice to speak many words. During individual gatherings, he usually said nothing, but little children love one another. The disciples and the brothers in attendance, annoyed because they always heard the same words, finally said, teacher, why do you always say this? He replied with a line worthy of John, Because it is the Lord's commandment, and if it alone is kept, it is sufficient. He said this because of the author's or apostle's present mandate, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the household of faith. And of course, we see this teaching very clearly in this epistle. In chapter 3, in verse 11, John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It might be that this message from 1 John on love is more urgent today than in the past thousand years. Love is a topic that we as a society have become very confused about And of course, the topic of love is just one of the many topics that John addresses in this epistle. Today, as I mentioned, uh, marks the beginning of a new sermon series here in the epistle of 1 John. We just finished Amos uh, uh, recently, and today is going to be an overview of the entire book as I normally do. We're kind of looking at the epistle here from a 30,000 foot level, you know, very high view. 
And Lord willing, next week we're going to begin to dive in just verse to verse to verse to verse to verse. And so the outline today is very simple. We're going to look at the author and date, the purpose, and the themes that we see in 1 John. The book of 1 John and Hebrews are the only two New Testament epistles that are anonymous. The author of 1 John does not identify himself anywhere. And yet we do have a significant amount of external evidence pointing to John. This is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Uh, John, one of the 12 disciples, the son of Zebedee. Now, historically speaking, it was not until the rise of what is called higher criticism, uh, basically questioning the Bible uh, in academic circles, it was not until the rise of higher criticism in the 18th century that the authorship of 1 John was questioned. So the author, authorship was attributed to John throughout the history of the church until uh, higher criticism in the 18th century. For hundreds of years, the church accepted that John was the author of this epistle. One might consider the fact that the early church fathers clearly and repeatedly attributed this to John. We have Irenaeus of Lyons, Clement of Alexandria, Origen of Alexandria, the Muratorian Canon, all these and more said that John is the author of this epistle. One might also consider the numerous parallels that exist between 1 John and John's gospel, which consists of a very, very similar style in vocabulary. Uh, we see in that place, in John's gospel and in 1 John, much of the vocabulary is the same, the style is the same. A lot of times John likes to talk in extremes, light and dark. And he presents this in both the Gospel of John and in 1 John. There also is an emphasis on the same theological themes. Basically, in short, the testimony of the church has consistently been to attribute authorship to John. Uh, The date of the writing here is um, most likely, and there's not a ton of evidence on this, but most likely A.D. 90 to 95. Uh, Part of the reason for this is uh, a philosophy that we're going to see a little bit later in the message today, but a philosophy called Gnosticism uh, started to develop in some of its infant stages later in the first century, and because John is rebuking that, it likely coincides with AD 90 to 95. He also likely writes from Ephesus to the churches in Asia Minor, okay? So John writes this, A.D. 90 to 95, to the churches in Asia Minor. That's kind of the setting, the context, where, uh, where this is coming from. This letter or this um, epistle was written for a purpose that we do not have to guess because John states it clearly and plainly. There are three verses in 1 John that say, I write to you so that. Okay. Now he does say many times, I am writing these things to you. I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you. But three times specifically, he says, I write to you so that, which indicates purpose. And I'm going to give to you these three verses. The first one is first John and one and verse four. He says, we are writing these things 
so that our joy may be complete. Okay, has something to do with joy here, okay? 1 John 2, 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that, what? You may not sin. 1 John 5, 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that or so that you may know that you have eternal life. Assurance of faith. Assurance of salvation. In short, 1 John 1, 4 teaches that this epistle was written so that you would have joy. 1 John 2, 1 teaches that this epistle was written so that you would not sin, so that you would be holy, so that you would pursue Christ-likeness. And 1 John 5 and 13 teaches that this epistle was written so that you would have assurance of faith. Therefore, the purpose is centered around these three ideas, and that is joy, holiness, and assurance. This is why John writes this epistle. This is the purpose. Now, I want to read to you a verse from Isaiah, and I want to bring this to bear on 1 John and kind of see how these merge together. In Isaiah 55 and verse 11, we have this promise from God, and that is this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. This is a promise that we have in Isaiah, where we recognize that God's word does not fail to accomplish its purposes. God's word is not ineffective. God's word is, we might say, efficacious. It is effective. It accomplishes the thing that it sets out to accomplish. Based on the confidence that we have in God's word to accomplish its desired ends and purposes, we can say that by the end of this series in 1 John, if you are a believer in Christ, you should have more joy, you should be more serious about holiness and less sloppy with sin, and you should have greater assurance of your salvation because the word accomplishes the thing that it sets out to accomplish. It's not going to fail in that. This is the purpose of this epistle, and God accomplishes his purposes. The book of 1 John was written to increase joy. The, the book of 1 John was written to increase holiness. The book of 1 John was written to increase assurance. And of course, these are connected together. The more that you are sure of your standing in Christ, the more joyful you are, Right? If you are entertaining doubts about your own salvation, I don't know if I'm in the kingdom or I'm outside of the kingdom, and you're plagued with doubts, you're not going to be characterized by a lot of joy. But the more that you say, no, no, God the Father has set his love on me, the more joyful you are. And likewise, the, the, the connections can also be made elsewhere. The more that we are increasing in holiness, the more joyful we're going to be. The more that we obey the word of God and the more that we follow in his commandments, the more delight comes to the soul. 
And of course, this purpose, these three uh, purposes here of 1 John, that this, that this would work itself out in our souls is my heart's desire for you. I want to see you. I want to see this church family. I want to see you all here as my brothers and sisters in Christ, as friends, as church members, to be happier, to be more Christ-like, and to be more confident of the hope, the steadfast anchor, the hope that we have in Christ. I rejoice at your successes In your joy, I rejoice in your Christ-likeness, and I rejoice in your confidence in Christ, pastorally and personally speaking. As I was preparing this message, I was praying that the Lord would increase these three things in our lives as a church. Now, the modern enlightened, quote-unquote, individual would tell you Uh, One of these things is not like the other. And would tell you that these things are inherently incompatible to suggest, to have the audacity to suggest that increased holiness and increased obedience could lead to increased joy. (laughs) What are you talking about? The modern enlightened individual would tell you that holiness is by its very nature stifling and it decreases joy. They would tell you that increased license and increased freedom to do whatever I want, to sin in whatever way I want to, that leads to increased joy. That you are to just be yourself. And whatever the impulses of your heart tells you to do, go follow that. Listen to your heart. Follow your heart. Be who you are. And then you will have increased joy. But scripture, unlike the enlightened, quote unquote, 21st century mind, repeatedly links increased holiness to increased joy. It's not stifling. David writes in Psalm 119, 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. This is not, I don't think, a very popular verse because we don't like to think of longing after God's commandments. I can long after God's person. I, I, could, I could love him as a person, but his commandments? And so, of course, we have all this, you know, Jesus is my boyfriend theology, right? This kind of, I get these romantic feelings and these lovely feelings. But where is the talk about, I, I long for your rules and your commandments? Likewise, David says in this same psalm, 119, 111, your testimonies are my heritage forever. They are the joy of my heart. How many times do you, does this, what do you, what do you enjoy? I, I enjoy, you know, uh, the outdoors. I enjoy this hobby. I enjoy that thing. I enjoy this thing. It is the desire of the great joy of God's commandments. 
and his testimonies are the joy of my heart. One might also consider the joy of the man who has ordered his life around the Lord's commandments over the course of decades and to see the joy in his life in his old age. You, you, can, you can see that. You can see that. You see, you, you see that in people's faces? You look at the man who has ordered his life around his own will and his own lusts, and in his, own age, his old age, he is just a cynical old man that nobody wants to be around. <laughs> but you see one who has ordered his life around the word of God, and there's just a confident joy and a rest and a satisfaction in his face. You want to be with that kind of person. His countenance just brings joy into the room. Those who have lived chaotic lives, lives of disorder and disobedience in their finances, their parenting, their lusts, their diet, and their work all get to the end of their lives and they only reap what they have sown over the course of their entire lives of decades of doing this. Disobedience, ungodliness, and sin only leads to despair, but obedience, godliness, and holiness leads to joy. If we were to go around this room, some of you could actually point to examples, and you could point to examples in your own life, and you could say, I regret that decision so much. It robbed me of my joy for years. Some of you can point that. I wish that I had never sinned in that way. But 1 John brings us back to the point where we recognize that we can have joy and that it comes from pursuing Christ. You have a book that is talking page after page after page about living like Christ, about getting rid of the sin that dwells in us, and also talking about joy on the same pages. It all goes together. I want to draw our attention to the fact that assurance, likewise, is a significant part of the purpose of this epistle. Note 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. One of the noticeable features, and in fact, probably, if anyone knows anything about 1 John, they probably know this, and that is that 1 John presents to us a series of of tests, of assurance. You can know that you're in Christ if your life is characterized this way or that way. And we have test after test after test after test after test of assurance. We recently uh, went through a video series on the assurance of faith by Joel Beakey. And we are going to see those themes that we saw in that video series expanded here in 1 John. So we have uh, assurance, um, we have holiness, uh, we have these purposes that we see in 1 John, and now we want to see what the themes are. Some of these things kind of have a tendency to overlap. Um, it can be somewhat dangerous to try to separate everything in different compartments in Scripture, uh, and yet there are some noticeable features here. There are three uh, themes or features of First John that I want to highlight. The first one is this. Love 
and law are in-laws. Okay, now I am taking this phrase specifically from Sinclair Ferguson, and I want to read to you something that he writes that is helpful in this regard. He says, despite its claims, antinomianism, which is casting off of the law, we don't have to obey God's commands. Antinomianism ignores the teaching of the apostle of love, who stresses that genuine assurance will go hand in hand with authentic commandment keeping. To him, love and law are not antithetical, they are in-laws. Faith works by love, love expresses itself in obedience. In other words, what we are saying is obedience to the law, to God's word, to God's commandments, this is not something that exists in contradiction to love for God. They fit together. We see this theme perhaps most clearly in 1 John 5, 2 through 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. In John's gospel, let's go to John's gospel now, he says the same thing. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15 is like nails on a chalkboard for the antinomian. Ah, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Commandment keeping is the surest sign of love for God. If you don't obey God's commandments, if you knowingly disobey God's commandments, you don't love God. The Christian does not have the option to say, I love God, I'll decide if I want to obey him later. Okay? The Christian recognizes that obedience is my expression of love for God. Now, I understand that this could possibly raise all sorts of questions about legalism and all those kinds of things, okay? And there's a great little book that I commend to you that we went through as a church a couple of years ago called The Whole Christ, and he goes into a lot of detail explaining some of these tensions that exist. But what I will say, in short, is that legalism, which is alive and strong today, by the way, is when you separate the law of God from the person of God so that you obey God with no love for God. You obey God for what it will earn you. And so you believe that uh, if I did a really good job this week in my devotions and I shared the gospel with someone and I'm really on a roll here, God is going to kick me a few favors this week kind of a thing, right? Or I had a really bad week in my devotions, and that's why I got demoted at work kind of a thing, okay? We, we have a tendency to carry over into th- this, this kind of works-oriented uh, understanding of God's love for me. God doesn't love me very much today because I haven't done it. And God, God loves me more than he loves you because look at my life compared to look at your life, okay? Um. 
we need to be careful not to throw the baby out with the bathwater in this area. There's a tendency to think, well, just, well, that's all the legalists over there, so obedience must be bad. Um, have you read, like, a single page of the Bible? <laughs> do, do, do you understand what's going on in Scripture, that holiness is important? It doesn't earn us place with God. That's what the, that's the gospel, the gospel. Jesus died because we couldn't do this. Okay. So no, holiness does not earn me a place with God, but it's, it doesn't mean that we discard it. We love it. Obedience to God is an expression of love for God, not a tool of manipulation for us to get higher into the kingdom or to get more favor from God than your neighbor. And if your obedience, if your Christian obedience is merely so that you can look down your nose at the church member sitting next to you, you don't have obedience, you have self-righteousness. Okay? This is not what this is about. And there are churches filled with these kinds of people. It's a miserable place to be there. (laughs) There are whole churches filled with these kinds of people. But not us. (laughs) We're better than that. We'll look down our nose at them. (laughs) You all have a little legalist inside of you. Okay? Maybe a big legalist. I don't know. I think most of, if we were honest, most of us probably have a mixture of these things in us. There's a little legalist here and a little antinomian here, okay? And it's like, one, and in one moment you're this, and one moment that, and you're kind of going back and forth. At least that's kind of my experience, okay? Um, holiness is important, and it is good, and we are to delight in it, and we are to love it. We need Christ for it. Some of the intersection of some of these these themes here. John teaches us in 1 John that if you love God, you will demonstrate that through your obedience. In fact, so serious is this, is he he said, if you are not obeying God and you are living your life like the heathens, that is a sure sign that you're not in Christ. It's a sure sign that you have not been regenerated yet. It's a serious thing. That's the first theme that we see in 1 John. The second theme that we see is a call to challenge the spirit of the age. Okay? You know what the term spirit of the age means, right? It's kind of the prevailing um, thinking or philosophy of this generation. Every generation, every age has a different spirit of the age. Uh, and in John's day, the spirit of the age was something new on the scene, Gnosticism. Uh, John unapologetically challenges this philosophy. Now, it it has been noted before, and I want to make it clear 
Um, it has been noted before that Gnosticism, uh, as a fully functioning philosophy, was not present at the time that John wrote this epistle. However, we do know that it was in its infant stages during this time, or it was beginning to come on the scene. There were some themes and some philosophies that were being discussed that uh, were, were Gnostic in, in their outlook. Um, one author describes and says about this epistle, his first letter is not a theological treatise written in the academic piece of a library, but a tract for the times called forth by a particular and urgent situation in the church. This situation concerns the insidious propaganda of certain false teachers. Okay, First John is, in one sense, a tract for the times. It is, uh-oh, false teachings crept in. Let me write a response to that false teaching. Now, Gnosticism, just to explain very briefly, was a philosophy and is a philosophy that basically says that physical matter is bad, and spiritual things are good. So, someone who would have uh, believed in Gnosticism would have been highly offended by the Incarnation. Right? God, we know from John chapter 4, He is a spirit. Uh, God... The Father does not have a physical body. And so if, for you to tell someone who believes in Gnosticism that God became flesh, that's the most offensive thing that you could tell that person because we're trying to get out of these bodies. We're trying to escape these bodies. These bodies are bad. It's a physical thing. The spiritual, that's what's good. And so actually there were some... Um, uh, Christological heresies that were circulating. Uh, there was one Christological heresy that taught that Jesus only appeared to have a body or seemed to have a body. He, it looked like it was a body, but it wasn't really a body. By the way, look down at 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, and you'll immediately see the connection here to what he was trying to accomplish. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and touched with our hands. Why do you think that verse is included in the Bible? We touched Christ with our hands. He's refuting the early form of Gnosticism. You could actually touch Jesus. He had a physical body. Um. So, so these, this group of people was denying that Christ had come in the flesh. They were saying that physical things were bad, spiritual things were good. Now, Gnosticism is still alive today, uh, not like it was back then. Um, we have a tendency sometimes, even in our Christian circles, to adopt some fragments of Gnosticism by thinking that material or physical things are inherently evil. Um, so we might say that physical things like making a meal or cleaning your house or mowing your lawn or getting married have no value because those are physical and not spiritual. So an extreme example of this would be monks tend to think this way. 
right? Monks tend to think, well, why would I have a house and need to take care of that house when I could go off into the woods somewhere and I could just read my Bible 24 hours a day, seven days a week kind of a thing, okay? Let me do as much of the spiritual and get rid of all of the physical things. Um, But God created the world and said everything in the world was good, the physical world, which means there is nothing inherently evil about the physical world. Um, and we are to also recognize that the material world is not evil. Um, now, we know that we... There's ditches everywhere, okay? We can get caught up into materialism, and that's also a bad thing, but there is nothing inherently evil about physical things that God has created, okay? But the thing to note here in particular is that John, without apology, calls out the errors of the day. He just recognizes, this is what's going on in the world, this is what people are talking about, and I'm going to refute this with scripture, and he just does that. Now, our tendency today, broad evangelicalism, our tendency is to deal with errors in the church by being as neutral as possible and as soft as possible for as long as possible. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to put, I don't, uh, 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 we don't have to. But the Bible, from the beginning, through the prophets, through the Old Testament, through the historical books, through the New Testament, through the epistles, it all calls sin, sin. This means that we must call out the errors of the day and call them by name. But John, if you, if you call out such and such a sin, if you, if you call out uh, premarital sex from, from the pulpit as sin, that person who's visiting might not ever come back again. It's interesting that there's only some sins that that argument is made about. John, if you call out pornography from the pulpit, they might not come back and nobody ever says that. John, if you call out murder from the pulpit, if you call out rape from the pulpit, if you call out, they're not going to come back. I can't keep up with the list, okay? The problem is that I have let my cultural relevance membership card lapse, okay? I don't know what the list is anymore, okay? The list is always changing. You can say this and you can't say that, okay? I, it's the Bible, okay? I, this is what it says and that's what it means and I, I'm just delivering the mail. The point is... John gives to us, by example, that the Bible, not culture, dictates what we are to say. And he he says, my people, the churches in Asia Minor, are wrestling through this influx of false teachers who are teaching some things that are not true about Christ. And that are not true about doctrine. Things that are false doctrine and false teaching. This is harmful to the church. And so I'm going to call a spade a spade. I'm going to say this is what this is. 
He doesn't consult with the Gnostics first and say, how can we call out without being so? He doesn't do any of that stuff. He just says, this is what it is. This is what John does here with this early form of Gnosticism. He just calls it out. And we're called to do the same thing in our own areas of influence. Um, This is why we need boldness. Okay? The Bible doesn't just throw around this term boldness because it's going to be easy. It's because it's going to be hard to do this. It's because we know that if we do tell the truth, that we are going to risk certain things. But God is not calling you to calculate the risks of who's going to be your friend and who's not going to be your friend and what jobs you're going to have and lose and be kicked out of. God is not calling you. God is calculating the risks, okay? And God's working it out. He's just telling you to obey. And that's it. Just do what the word says. It says this is sin. Well, let's call this out. Now, of course, we understand there's, there's, we call out the sin and we give the gospel. We don't just call it out because we like to, you know, we're not being, uh, uh, you know, mean or we're just, this is what the Bible says. You need to repent of this or you're going to go to hell. And here's what the gospel is that you can believe in Christ and have joy forever. It's simple actually. The Bible, not culture, dictates what we are to say. The third theme uh, that we see here is the theme that God is light and God is love. We might actually say that this is the foundation to everything else. We are going straight to the fountainhead And we are looking at the character of God and we are seeing what these implications are and how it's manifesting itself. The character of God is such that he is light and he is love. And all, we've we've talked about this many times before, belief determines behavior, okay? How should I behave in 1 John? It flows out of this divine fountainhead. Well, this is what God is like, and therefore we are to act in this kind of a way and that kind of a way. We see in 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not, know, does not love does not know God because God is love. 1 John 4, 16, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. To say that God is light means that God is true, that he is holy, that he is separate from sin. And our obedience must flow from that. This is my king, my God, my savior. His character is such that he is light and there is no darkness. Therefore, I want more of that light and less of that darkness. Flow, it, it, the connection, there's lines drawn between the attributes of God and my personal response. 
taken together, we recognize that the foundation for morality and the foundation for ethics is God himself. What this means is that every non-Christian philosophy, worldview, religion, and thought has no foundation for ethics. There's no foundation for morality. We cannot bring a Christless morality to our culture. We cannot go to the culture without Christ and without Scripture and say, we can come together as a community in a neutral fashion without Christian principles and come up with good values. They must be grounded in Scripture. They must be grounded in the character of God. And if you don't believe this, then just look out at the culture around you. We're like going down this ramp at light speed. The culture's degrading. There's no Christ in here. Um, this is what we learned from 1 John, is that we need to have God as the foundation for all morality. The real question then we have to ask ourselves today is whether we will submit to Scripture or whether we will submit to culture. You and I will be um, driven along by something. Something. One writer notes, commentary... As we have seen, the errors of John's day were really an accommodation of Christian faith to the prevailing ideas of the secular culture. Sound familiar? Anyone ever try to accommodate Christian faith to the secular culture? In every generation, the church is challenged by the world either to confront or absorb its culture, to be squeezed into its mold or to let God remold your minds from within. Today, we are in danger of reflecting the existentialist philosophy of our society and not challenging it. This is why we Christians so often base our judgment and conduct on our personal feelings and experiences rather than on God's revealed truth. It is why we are conditioned by subjectivism rather than by the great objective realities of God and his word. John does not attempt a detailed analysis or critique of error. He has no need to do so. He proclaims the truth in the characteristic apostolic confidence that where the truth is declared and believed, error will be undermined and will ultimately collapse. I have six points of application today. Number one, recognize the joy that is available in loving and obeying Christ. Simple. Just consider a thousand little ways in which we can find joy in Christ. There is joy that comes from obedience to the creation mandate and exercising dominion in the sphere God has placed you. There is joy that comes from obedience to management of finances and having necessary funds to take care of simple things. Just ordering my life around the way God says to do my finances and then the Lord provides through that means there's joy there. These are simple little things. Simple little things of obedience. 
There is joy that comes from obedience in parenting, as God would call us to, and seeing the fruit that comes from that. There's joy that comes from ordering your life around the book of Proverbs. Just read what Proverbs says, and I'm just going to do this. Okay. Of course, there's joy in evangelizing and discipling and all these kinds of things as well. The second one is uh, evaluate your life for signs of conversion and act accordingly. We, we say this because one of the big purposes of this epistle is assurance of faith. Am I a Christian? And so we are called to look and see, am I showing fruit of my conversion? If this epistle gives you more questions than answers, I don't know about this, then you have some serious work to do in getting help and asking for insight and praying. And is this, am I really in Christ or not? And if this epistle provides you with assurance of faith, yes, I'm a sinner, yes, I know, but the Lord has has moved me and driven me along and look at what he's done in my life, then guess what? Rejoice. That's one of the purposes of this epistle is that you would find joy because of this. The third point of application is to pursue Christian obedience as a sign of your love and devotion to God. Again, love and law are in-laws. They are not at odds with one another. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. The next one is challenge the spirit of the age with boldness. John did this with Gnosticism. Okay. Uh, Our world happens to celebrate something in the month of June. And we are not called to uh, soft pedal things. We're called to call out the sin and point people to the truth of Scripture. And so whether it is what the world thinks June is about, or any other sin, or any other philosophy, we are to point others to the hope and truth of the gospel and the freedom that it provides from this. With no shame. We are to, number five, rejoice in the character of our loving God. This actually kind of goes with our 9 a.m. service today on trusting God that we've been looking at. Um, Sometimes we can entertain doubts of God's love for me. Does God really love me? And we talked about that at length this morning, particularly Romans 5, 8. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God goes back to the fountainhead. And we can be sure of his love for us. And finally, the last application uh, will go with this story from Jerome. And also, of course, this is taken from 1 John itself. Little children love one another. Love each other. Even the awkward ones. Even the strange ones, even the ones that get on your nerves, even the ones that are wrestling through certain sins and are still coming along, I don't care what it is, just love each other. 
short sin accounts. Forgive. Deal with things. Don't just avoid things when there's things that need to be taken care of. All of this is made possible by the love of Christ for us. This is not a pick-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps message or epistle. This is a recognize, this is, this is recognize that the love of God comes first and gives us the grace to be able to do all these things. Thank you, God, for your mercy and your grace to us. Thank you for this epistle. I pray that as we study this over the weeks ahead, that it would be something that encourages our souls, that rebukes us for sin, that causes us to have joy, that causes us to have greater assurance of salvation, that causes us to seek to love you through obedience more. Pray encourage us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.